How do I know what I think until I see what I say? The Green Notebook, carried by military leaders around the world. Within those pages are sweat, tears, triumphs, and the hard-won lessons of life. Lessons worth sharing. Each week, the team dives into the notebooks of military leaders, business professionals, authors, athletes and coaches, and entertainers to share lessons and help you lead with the best version of yourself. Hey, it's Joe here, and every morning before I crack open a book or sit down to do some writing, the first thing I do is brew an amazing cup of Alpha Coffee. They make premium 100% Arabica coffee, and Alpha has some of my favorite blends. They have Dawn Patrol, which is a nice medium light breakfast blend. I also enjoy Charlie Don't Surf, which is a medium Kona blend. And I even get to take Alpha Coffee to work with me because they also make K-Cups. Not only do they have great coffee... They're a great veteran-owned business who has shipped over 20,000 bags of coffee to deploy troops. They also offer a 10% discount to members of the military and first responders. And Alpha Coffee has been an awesome company to partner with at From the Green Notebook. So taste the Alpha difference and purchase their coffee today at www.alpha.coffee or via Amazon Prime. Welcome to another episode of From the Green Notebook. I'm your host, Joe Byerly. And this week, we're diving into the Green Notebook of David Gergen. Now, I'm really excited to bring you this episode because David has had some amazing life experiences. He is a New York Times bestselling author. He was the White House advisor to four presidents of different parties that included Nixon, Ford, Reagan, and President Clinton. He was the founder of the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard Kennedy School, and he recently published Hearts Touch with Fire, How Great Leaders Are Made, which is a guidebook for emerging leaders. In this book, he draws on vivid examples from personal experience, history, and recent headlines to shine light on pathways forward to those wishing to go into public service. In this interview, I talk with David about the book, and he shares the lessons he's learned observing some of the most powerful leaders in the world. He also describes the development of a leader in two parts, an inner journey and an outer journey. And an effective leader, he argues, must first become self-aware, then an achiever of self-mastery. It's not enough just to be smart and talented, he argues, but you must be able to master yourself before you can serve others. Well, there's a lot of wisdom packed into Hearts Touch with Fire and this interview. So please welcome to the show, David Gergen. Terrific. It's good to be here. I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to this discussion too, David. I mentioned in our introduction that, uh, that you just published a book. But before we actually talk about the book, can you spend a few minutes talking about your background and your career? Sure. Well, it's been a it's been a mixed career, a lot of uh, unexpected developments, a lot of luck at various times, and some heartbreaks at various times. I uh, grew up in North Carolina, a dirt road and uh, segregated South, but I was fortunate enough to have parents and a, and a family that was close knit. My dad was a chairman of the math department at Duke University for a quarter century. He was too young to be in the First World War, too old to be in the Second, but he believed for a long time went that you really give back to the country. He taught me that. And so he was extremely involved in teaching young military officers who were leaving the service how to teach in junior colleges, community schools, and things like that. 
and to make a good living at it. And there were a lot of good teachers who grew up all across the South, say South North Carolina, where I'm from, and you were in Fort Bragg. And there were a lot of very, very good community colleges scattered around. And a lot of them have great uh, science and math teachers that came out of that, that Army program. I went on from there to uh, my two older brothers had gone had gone to Yale and they uh, let me in because it's on affirmative action because I was from the South and they needed, they needed more Southerners and they needed more people they could look down on. Um, and, uh, you know, I talked too slow and all the rest. But in any event, I, I, I managed to go off to Yale myself, got in and was very involved in the newspaper. I had been very involved in newspapering back in North Carolina. Had worked uh, for the Durham Morning Herald for a number of years. I went to work when I was about 15, I think, 15 or 16. Went to work pretty full time. And uh, one thing led to another. I went from Yale to Harvard Law. When I was coming out of law school, the Vietnam War was underway. And uh, in the South, you answer the call. That's just part of the culture. So I signed up. I, I didn't really want to go to upstream Vietnam, but I was, I was happy to serve the country. So I went into the Navy and uh, was in for three and a half home ported in Japan for a couple of those years. Um, and actually, my wife, I was freshly married, and she came and spent a good chunk of that time with me in, in uh, overseas. And it turned out to be very good years for our marriage because we were just sort of on our own doing that. Uh, and while I was there, I got, called, I got a call from a friend I'd gone to college with who was working in the West Wing of the Nixon White House that they were trying to reform the draft. They had a really messy opening to the draft when it was a... Um, uh, it was all supposed to be done randomly, get your, get your draft number randomly. And if it's a long story, I'm happy to tell the story, but it's long. But that sort of drew me in a little bit. And I came back from Japan and worked um, uh, at Selective Service. We had a unit over there to, to reform the draft. And I, I ran that unit over time. And from there, got to be friends with people in the White House. And when I was coming out of the, uh, uh, when I was coming out of the Navy and out of that assignment, I thought I was going to go back to North Carolina to teach and maybe run for office, but I had, I had a job offer to go work in the White House for a year, which I took, and I, I thought it'd be a great experience, which it was, it was but I, was, I then rode the, rode the waves up and down with Watergate, um, and I thought, frankly, I was, my public life was over. I thought, it's like the Chicago Black Sox, you know, if you play for them and, and they find that you're Black Sox, you're done, you're, you, you can't play again. Well, I thought that'd be like that for the White House, but surprisingly, a number of us got through it and came back and served in the Ford administration, and I went on serving in Reagan. And then, uh, by great surprise, my, my friend, I'd known him a long time, Bill Clinton asked me to come and help him when he was uh, he was sliding in his early months, and uh, he was lost his confidence. In any event, he asked me if I'd come in and help him, and I, and I did for about, I think, 18 months. I got out of there before the midterm elections. I was happy to help a Democratic president, but I didn't want to run against Republicans. Yeah, so I have a ton of questions sure. about the about stories from your career, but I want to start with your book, Hearts Touched with Fire, How Great Leaders Are Made. What drove you to, to write this book? Well, as I, as I was leaving Washington, I was quite disillusioned with the way the country was being run, the, the, the problems that were starting to creep in with polarization and everything. And I had a chance to come start teaching. I first taught at Duke for a while. And then I, I had a job offer to come and be a professor of practice, professor of public service at the Kennedy School at Harvard. And that's when I really had a chance year after year to build a course up. And I thought I really wanted to talk about leadership. I'd work for leaders. I wanted to fill out my own sense of it. But more than that, I wanted to be part of passing on to the next generation, you know, ways to fix things. I think it's time to pass the torch. 
to pass it to a new generation. But we also have a responsibility to train that new generation, to be prepared for lives of service and leadership. What does it take? The military is our best institution we have for teaching leadership right now. But we need more of that kind of focus on civic responsibility, you know, because America is, not, is we're not an accidental nation. People work like hell to, get to develop this country. We're going to save it. We've got to really work hard again. I think, um, you know, you, you talked about investing in the next generation and the next generation stepping up. Right. And, you know, growing up, I remember looking at history books and, you know, just seeing the pictures of old people, yeah. you know, th- that were in there. But, you know, one of the things that you point out in the book is that like when you actually look back at history and one of the things that I've learned from reading history is that our history, especially the history of the United States, is full of young people Absolutely. who have stepped up and answered the call. And you, you actually touch on that in the book. Yep, I, I absolutely believe that. I'm all for the old. I just don't think we ought to be running the country. You know, I'm just turning 80. And uh, I can just tell you, I don't care how physically fit you are. You don't have quite a step you had when you were young. In particular, what we need to move beyond are the kind of arguments and stale, poisonous efforts to bring each other down. We need people who have escaped that. The nice thing about the generations that are coming up, the millennials and Gen Z, is they're not as burdened by all these memories of what happened in Vietnam, you know, the poison of the 80s and 90s. They're more independent than that. And frankly, I think if you go back in American history, you'll find that various times in our history, really young people have played major roles. Just look at the founders, you know, and Warren Bennis, who was a dear friend and wrote a lot about leadership, I think one of the best leadership gurus we had, he used to ask the question, it was a good question, how is it that when we were a young republic with three million people, we were able to produce six world-class leaders? Washington, Jefferson, Adams, Hamilton, Franklin, and Madison. Six world-class leaders, population of three million. Now we have a population of over 330 million, and we can't find one, you know, global leader. And, you know, we've had global leaders who've been assassinated, but we just don't have any now. Where are our Zelensky's now? Where are the heroes that we want to look up to? You can't build a country unless you have people you can look up to for role models. Yeah. And that's, you know, again, one of the things that I've learned through reading is that if you can't find role models in your immediate vicinity, the library's got them available to you 24 seven. Yeah. You know, looking back and reading the stories, much like some of the stories that you tell in your book and, and highlight of great examples of leadership. And I'd, I'd like to dive back into that sure. a little bit, you know, like one of the things that struck me and I'm really curious about is very early on, you said like you were in the White House during the Watergate scandal, yeah. and you did touch on it in the book, but I was curious about how old were you when you were weathering that storm? I came into the White House, well, when I came back from Japan and, and the military, that was the uh, early 70s, but I was in my late 20s. So you weren't even 30 years old yet. You're still yeah. developing as a leader, and you saw this playing out. I mean, what was going through your mind at the time, and, and what, how did that event affect you as a, as a leader moving forward? I spent a lot of time on Watergate, as you can imagine, indoors. And it, was, it, was, it had multiple lessons. Uh, one of the things that I was first convinced about and believed to be true was that Nixon was accused of, of several things, and I, and I was wound up being the editor for two or three white papers, in effect, to saying what had happened. And it turned out on some of the, the peripheral issues 
He was innocent on most of those. And so I, I was sort of persuaded that if he's innocent on those, he must be more innocent on Watergate than it is. And it turned out it was completely different on Watergate. On Watergate, they, you know, the, ins, the people who were like Haldeman and Ehrlichman who were telling me and other young staff guys, oh, this is all make-believe. This is just the liberals coming after us. It's Katie Graham and wanting to bring us down over the Washington Post. And it's all going to go away and don't worry about it. Just get back to your job. That was sort of what they told me. And it turned out we weren't being truthful with us. The cover-up worked better inside the White House than anywhere else. <laughs> yeah. I began to realize life is more complicated than I thought it was. You can't completely trust any situation you're in. And also, uh, it's hard to judge your mates. I worked in the Reagan White House next door to Mike Deaver. We had our offices right next to each other in the West Wing of the White House. And I knew Mike liked a good glass of wine. He would occasionally break open a bottle on a Friday afternoon or something like that. But I, what it turned out was he was an alcoholic. And the next administration, I was four doors down the hall from John Dean. And I thought, you know, he was running a respectable operation because I knew his deputy pretty well, Fred Fielding. I didn't know John as well. And only when I read his book and his memoir and Bob Woodward stuff that I realized he, he was running a mafia like operation. It was a criminal operation. I, I became more, I became a little more thoughtful after that about judging people and trying to judge the situation to think, yeah, you, you need to get this right. You don't want to go just sort of storming off one direction or another because life is not always fair. But I did think this, I thought this was a more forgiving country than I expected. As I say, I thought, you know, we're playing for the Chicago Black Sox, but people gave us a second chance. A number of friends of mine came through and they were all, all right. They had good lives. Some of my friends went to jail. And I always felt, you know, you got to be careful what you do for your superior. And I, I tell people after that, bring uh, screw you money. Bring, you bring enough money. If you're going to work, you're going to be in a marriage or whatever, and you're working for government, government somewhere, military anywhere, have some money in the bank that you can walk away. You know, usually people used to talk about having at least two months worth of, worth of rent money so you could make it through. And I, I believe that. And I just tell young people, just don't obey anybody gives you an order that's going to put you over the line. You can't do that. You've got to be play within the line. That helped me some. I also came through, but another lesson I learned was I wasn't sure how strong our system of government was. I wasn't sure whether our democracy would hold. Um, and I came away very, very impressed by how well we responded as a nation to Watergate. Uh, I thought the judiciary handled it well. Judge Sirica was, I thought, very, very fair. The, the hearings on Capitol Hill with Sam Urban and others were very fair hearings, and they uncovered the, the, the taping system. I didn't know. None of the people I worked with knew about that taping system. And uh, the press held well. Woodward and Bernstein were more honest than Haldeman and Ehrlichman by some distance. And they broke a lot of the stories. And so the, the norms held. And we, you know, and I felt better about our democracy. During that time, I'd gone to, so I was in the same school that Bob Woodward was. We, we knew each other. And we used to talk sometimes uh, when he would call the White House. And Nixon had approved me to set up a back channel to, to Woodward. And we used to talk about the pillars of the republic crumbling before our eyes. We thought maybe the, the democracy would be destroyed. We got through it. But we won't get through every many more of these things. The democracy held, but at great cost to people's trust in government. You know, one of the lessons that you discuss in the book is that we often view leadership in terms of the outer journey. Yeah. You know, get, getting the skills necessary to perform well at work, to get promoted, to get achievements. 
But a lot of times what we're not paying attention to is that inner journey that we need to take. So what is that inner journey that, that you talk about in the book and, and what uh, role does that play? I'm so pleased you asked that uh, question. You and I are both uh, believers in Joseph Campbell, who was a, uh, a man who really uh, brought to, he studied civilizations across the globe, both over time and, and what they were in his own day, to discover if there were, if there were stories, narrative stories that they had. And he found there were a lot of similarities in how people regarded this. And one of the main arguments that he emerged with was the importance of a, what he called a hero's journey. And that is in almost every sort of fairy tale about the Knights of the Round Table, there will be a knight that will want to go rescue a damsel in distress in another castle. The knight leaves his home. He goes and fights a dragon. He fights other forces and eventually gets the, he saves the girl, brings her back home. And that's his journey. That's his hero's journey. He was a hero in Kenya, but he had to go out and slay the dragon in order to, to get that. And the argument now is that that's like what a leader's journey is. You, in effect, go out on your own journey and you come and you get knocked around, but you have to persevere. You have to develop your own true north. And that begins to formulate who you are. Before you start to try to, try to order others around, you have to get a hold of who you are. As I mentioned I work with Richard Nixon. And he was, I think, the best strategist I've seen in public life. You know, he and Kissinger would, would, would come to grips with these big problems. Who were the best generals of World War I? What did they teach us about strategy and that sort of thing? So if that had been, and, and, and Nixon, like Churchill, believed that he who can look farther back and see farther ahead. So that if you study history, you're more likely to be able to see the trend lines uh, that will come in the future. Uh, and and I, I came to, I've come to believe that, but the journey toward leadership starts with you, not with the people you're, you're leading, but with you yourself. You have to be able to, you've got to conquer yourself and lead yourself before you can do that with others. And that requires a certain amount of self-understanding. And then it requires you sort of you know, deciding how to live a life, becoming the author of your own life. And you do that by selecting your values and your true north. So there is a journey that takes place for a leader. And usually the journey actually can, can last the rest of your life. But unless you make that journey, unless you figure out who you are, you are very vulnerable and can fail. Richard Nixon, as I said, was the best strategist that I had ever seen, but he had inner demons that he had never learned to conquer. And they brought him down. You know, he couldn't, he had these temptations that he was drawn to. There was a good Nixon and there was a bad Nixon. And, and the bad next, you know, you got to get that under control before you can go out. You know, there's, there's so many temptations when you're in leadership and you're up on a pedestal and people look up to you. You, you think you, the rules don't apply to you. People go off and do crazy things and they bring themselves down. I mean, Nixon, David Frost interviewed Nixon after he left office. And I remember so well Nixon telling him what happened. He said, I gave my enemies a sword and then they ran me through. I, that's exactly what happened. You know, he was the cause of his own failure. Yeah. And I think to your point, David, I think one of the things that we struggle with now is that, you know, in today's world, you know, we, we've got like the, the, the literal world at our fingertips with our phones. And I think it's yeah. so easy to stay distracted, to stay busy yeah. and not take time to do that inner journey, which you talk about in the book. And yeah. you know, one of the things that I've found that's really helped me over the last years is to start that inner journey is, is the practice of reading, writing, and reflection. 
Absolutely. It's the reading, writing, and reflection. I think I think if you want to be a good leader, you need to be a reflective practitioner. Because it's just like when what the army does, you know, after a conflict or after a fight, you know, they regroup and they and they take a look at it and, and diagnose it, see what they did right, what they did wrong, how can they make it better? You need to do the same thing with yourself. This is an argument Peter Drucker used to make all the time. He used to be the big leadership guru in the country. And I have a lot of respect for Drucker. I spent some time with him and was privileged to do that. Uh, but he was very thoughtful about this. I'll highlight that, David. You know, one of the essays I read that Drucker wrote was about assessing our own decisions. And I actually yeah. picked up a practice from him, which is writing down the decisions that I make right. on a daily basis and then going back yeah. and reviewing them. And I think you even mentioned that in the book, too. Yes, I do. I do. I, and, it, and it applies in all phases of life. I was uh, privileged to serve on the Yale board, university board, for six or seven years. And we had a, we had a president named Rick Levin. And he was the best non- leader of a nonprofit I've ever known. What happened when school year opened, he would come to the board and he would have a list of here are my three or four big goals for the coming year. And he was quite candid about it. And then at the end of the year, he'd bring out those original goals and we would have to sit down and have an assessment. How do we do on each one of these? Where did we fail? Where did we succeed? What does it tell us about next year? And it made a huge difference. I felt like this is a very rational, thoughtful process. You know, you can't you can't foresee everything, but it helped a lot in sort of getting a, a sense and building a narrative within the group about who you are and how this group works and why it's important. This um, business about a distraction, you're absolutely right about that. Hey folks, it's Joe here. And I would like to thank our newest sponsor, my alma mater, the University of North Georgia, located in Dahlonega, Georgia, home of the Mountain Phaser Ranger School. If you are looking for an education, this is the place to go. They are a top-rated senior military college offering over 70 degrees, including critical languages, international affairs, strategic studies, and an award-winning cyber defense program. Their Corps of Cadets is an Army-only program with 24-7 leader development. They have consistently been ranked as our nation's number one Army ROTC program among senior military colleges, and this is the institution that I credit with preparing me to be an Army officer. So, if you want to learn more, go to their website at www.go.ung.edu forward slash Army One and learn more about the University of North Georgia, the Military College of Georgia. Now, back to the episode. Going back to some of your observations you've made, which this is what I love is that you've seen so many different leaders come and go in the White House, not just presidential, but chiefs of staff and other leaders. So what are some of the values that you think kind of stand out as you look back on your career? Well, the value that I think we've lost so much of, but is actually essential in all forms of human endeavor is trust. That people have to be able to believe your word is right. They need to know that you know what you're talking about. So they, they don't want to trust what you say unless they know you know what the hell you're talking about. And then you need to be consistent so you don't change your mind every 24 hours because that really, you know, all sorts of things happen. So, And I think I think you need to be dedicated to your people you're working with. We have moved, as, as Warren Bennis has argued and others have argued, we've moved away from the great man theory, you know, that a single individual can come in on a white horse and save you, save the country. That's not how wildlife works. It, we've moved to much more to, to a collaboration and constructive collaborations of teams to groups. 
you know, the, the, I think there are two photographs that come to mind. One is of John Kennedy in the, in the White House, in the, in the Oval Office, all alone at dusk, hunched over looking at a globe. And you, and you felt looking at him, he's got all the weight of the world on his shoulders because everybody's looking to him to solve the problems. And he couldn't, he couldn't do it that easily. Uh, whereas if you look more recently at Barack Obama, the picture that is, is seared in my mind is Obama down in the Situation Room with seven or eight people around him, Secretary of this, Secretary of that. And they're all, you know, talking to the commanders in the field about Osama bin Laden and the chase after Osama bin Laden. But that it was one person like Kennedy versus a group, an organization like the one Obama had. And increasingly, the best organizations are ones that bring together good teams. You know, they, they listen to the Jim Collins of the world about getting the right people on the bus, the wrong people off the bus and the right people in the right seats. And on that, I mean, like, you know, one of the things that uh, that you did was you're a member of several staff, several teams. Yes, yes. That I think I reported to like 25 different people over the course of my career. Actually, I, I want to ask you a question about this because I just want to hear this story again because I, I love it so much. I want to ask you about teams, great teams in a minute, great staffs. But, you know, one of the jobs that I've done in the last couple of years is, is help prepare senior leaders with read aheads. And, uh, you know, like help them with speeches, stuff like that. But one of the rules that we've always had is like, you don't hand the leader a binder that's like phone book thick of read ahead material because they they don't just have time to read it. But you guys accidentally did that one time, right? To President Reagan? Yeah. You talking about Williamsburg? Yes. Yeah. I I love, I just love you to tell that story again because it's such a great story. Oh, it's uh Reagan, going back to this point, you have to know, you have to learn when you're on your inner journey, how you relate to uh, briefings, what works for you. Some people want big, thick notebooks. They want 20, 25 pages. And, you know, those are usually people who've gotten a lot of data, lived off data, or you know, like to get down in the weeds. Then there are other people, and Reagan was one of these people, give it to me in one page first. I need to sort of conceptualize. I need the central message. And I need, you know, what really matters. Don't give me 25 facts that don't matter. So we were very careful about limiting how much paper we gave to, to Reagan. By the way, we also had Nancy looking over our shoulders. So if you went, if you sent Reagan packing at the end of the day, they, all presidents take work back to back home with them. You know, they take it up to the second floor. But Nancy wanted to make sure you didn't pass on too much. And she would, if, if he came in, Ronnie came in tired, you'd, you'd hear from Nancy. <laughs> so here we are. You, you would appreciate this. We are going to what's called a G7 or G8 meeting. It was, it was heads of major Western uh, democracies meet once a year. And at that time, there were only seven or eight. Now it's bigger. But here's the way it worked. It, it, uh, each year, one, one new leader. At first, year would be the leader of Germany. Then it'd be the leader of Canada. Then that leader would invite that, everybody to come to his country and meet there in a retreat for two, three, four days. And so it came time in the second or third year of the Reagan administration when he was going to be the host. And he chose to invite everybody to Williamsburg. And so we had this G8 summit meeting in Williamsburg. Now, that put a special burden on Reagan for preparation purposes, because you do have to prepare some paper. So and especially for international purposes, usually a minimum of five or six pages, usually often up to 10. And Reagan would have like he had to have a meeting with every single person coming alone. It was a one on one. It was called bilateral. He had to have a bilateral meeting. Plus, he had to play host when the whole group got together. This put an enormous burden on him to prepare for like eight or nine meetings all in one day, all packed together. 
And then there's going to be the Nancy question because she was going to be really ticked off if you if you weren't careful. So Jim Baker got the briefing book. Got it slimmed down as much as he could. And then he went to Reagan and said, Mr. President, we know you, you, uh, you're you going to have a lot on your plate for tomorrow, but would you not stay up late? Just just, just scan these papers. You don't stay up late doing it. And he said, yes, I'll be glad to. And so he off he sauntered. And we didn't see him again until the next morning for breakfast. And we were all sitting. And he comes in, walks in. He looks like he'd been hit by a Mack truck. I mean, his eyes are baggy. He's, he's, he's glossy. He's glossing over. He's, he's not totally himself. And we said, oh, God, he's got to stay up and read that thing. And we're going to have such trouble. When Where's Nancy? She's going to be after us with that little pitchfork of hers. And this is going to be a hellish day. And uh, what happened? Why did you stay up so late? And he told us over eggs. Um, he said, fellas, I have a confession to make. And we said, what's that? And he said, well, I want to confess to you about last night. I said, well, yeah, Mr. President. Um, well, you know, I sat down with your briefing book, and it was really good. You guys did a great job, and I appreciate that. But I'm afraid, uh, did you know that the sound of music was on last night? <laughs> and, did, you know, that's my favorite movie. He said, oh, yeah. So I never read your briefing book, and I got to bed really, really late. I'm sorry. And we said, oh, God. Even, yeah, now we don't have to worry about Nancy. We've got to worry about those vipers in the press corps. We're going to say he's sleepy, he fell asleep, as he fell asleep once with the Pope and over lunch. And I was there, and it was something. Um, but it's, it didn't screw this up. But he, he was good because he got above the, he got above, you know, the weeds. And, you know, frankly, he was good because he turned aside what we on his staff and our arrogance thought that he must have from us or he couldn't get through. That he wouldn't know how to. He was much better off himself because he looked at the big picture and he was frank about it. And he had a good time with the leaders. And it was a great success. But it did teach me that the, 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 the followers place, if you're in the Navy, you, you're, you get down in the engine room. And that's where you spend a lot of your time. But the captain has to be up in the forecastle. There's got to be somebody up guiding the ship, choosing the port you're seeking. And, you know, that's that's the person who becomes the leader, brings everybody else along. Yeah, I've, I really enjoyed that story because I, I can't tell you how many briefing books I created that never got <laughs> read. And the principal did just fine without it. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> you never know quite why you, you were needed for all that. I mean, there's got to be somebody around who helps to keep it simple. Yeah, yeah. It's it's about, you know, distilling a bunch of data down into... Yeah, exactly. And your values and being able to weigh your values and balance off. I mean, you know, values can conflict. You know, you can be sent in two different directions by your principles and, and you've got to sort that out. And usually for the best leaders, the toughest questions come to the leader. The easy questions you can get disposed of down below, lower in the organization. It's the tough ones. It's the 52-48 questions. You know, it's the 52% this way and 48% the other way. That's really close. And your whole presidency can 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 ride on it. Just out of curiosity, I mean, what were some of the other lessons you learned in being a good staff person in supporting somebody else? Well, uh, you know, I spent a lot of years being staff, of my early years, and and I I think that's a very honorable place to be, and I think you can also accomplish a lot. But I thought one of the things I I learned was important, it, and it came back to me again and again when I was running my own shows, is the importance of a good staff person is someone who is extremely sensitive to what you're doing today and tries to keep you out of trouble and help is right there in the meeting, but has one eye on the future. You know, one eye on the day, 
one eye on the future because you've got to have somebody who's thinking about what could happen, what could, especially important to figure out what could go wrong. How do we sort this out? You know, and that pre-planning, that's keeping an eye on it is really, really important. You know, it was Senator Napoleon that before he went into any major battle, he would spend time with himself just trying to figure out six or seven different ways it could break. And what would he do in the event that this happened or that happened? So that when trouble hit, he'd already thought about it. He'd already given it a lot of consideration. And Emerson, of all people, writes very favorably about Napoleon, about his decision-making and how he would fly. He could, you know, he could fly ahead of other people because he had pre-thought and pre-planned. Yeah, well, one of the important aspects of decision-making is, you know, remaining calm under pressure. Yes. And I would imagine, and, and again, like coming back from your book, some of the things that I was reading about was the need for leaders, especially presidents, to remain calm under pressure. Because a lot of the situations they face, you know, you need that steady hand. So, so what role does that play in leadership? Well, once you send a signal out, of uncertainty or fearfulness or whatever you tell people you're really worried we're going to lose kind of thing. I think you can undercut the morale and the confidence of your of your own team. You know, Eisenhower was very careful about that. He used to say it's important. He would take his problems and his anxieties to his pillow. That's where he wanted to sort them out. And that was, I think, a, um, uh, a very, very important part of it. But it's also the willingness to take responsibility that becomes, I think, really important for a leader. When things go wrong, going back to the Eisenhower example, you know, on the eve of D-Day, you probably know this, on the eve of D-Day, he sat down and wrote out two statements. One was in case we were victorious, and the other was in case we were defeated. And he wanted to have both ready. And one of them said, we were victorious. He put all the, he said, it was, it was not me, it was the troops. They delivered. That was them. So that was the victorious thing. The one for when they were defeated, I take responsibility. It was not the men. It was my responsibility. I made I made mistakes. I'll take the blame. Yeah, and it was actually his air marshal that was uh, really pleading the case for him not to do the airborne aspect of the operation, giving them all these facts and figures. Uh-huh. And Eisenhower said, "I'd like for you to put that in writing. So when this goes south, when this goes wrong." I want everybody to know that it was you who was like the dissenting voice. Oh, I didn't, never heard that story. That's really yeah, interesting. Yeah, I actually, I got a chance through From the Green Notebook to read Susan Eisenhower's latest book. Oh, yes, yes. How Susan, I Made Susan Decisions. Good. And I got to speak to her and the stories she had was about her grandfather were, were absolutely amazing. And that's one of the stories that, that she captured in the book that really resonated with me. Yes, yes. There's a wonderful book by a guy at Princeton, Fred. Greenstein, on the hidden hand presidency. And it was about Eisenhower and how he convinced people he, he wasn't quite smart enough and that sort of thing, but especially in dealing with the press, that he was sort of a, would blubber and he would, because he, he wanted to keep his options open and he didn't want the press board to sort of force him into a corner of any kind. So he would actually create a fog, a word fog in some of his press conferences in order to give himself, let's say, on Taiwan or Korea or something like that. And it made a big difference. And when when Greenstein was given permission, he was a Democrat, a lifelong Democrat, but he was given permission by, by the Eisenhower family to be the first person to go through Eisenhower's papers, his, you know, his private papers. He discovered a president that we didn't know was there. Wow. He discovered that, that Eisenhower actually was a really smart guy. And he, uh, Eisenhower used to write MacArthur's speeches 
and worked for MacArthur, as you know, MacArthur was had a great pen. He was in many other ways controversial, to put it mildly. But I thought that was interesting that 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 Eisenhower didn't want people to think he was too smart. He wanted people to underestimate him. Lincoln was like that. Lincoln, you know, felt he could he could throw a guy if the other guy got to you know got to be a wiseacre and thought he had Lincoln put the country bumpkin. You know, Lincoln would play the country bumpkin up till he had to make a decision in a legal court, and then he knocked the hell out of him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I I heard the same thing too from uh, from Benjamin Franklin. Yeah, he talked about the role humility played and how he communicated. You know, even as the uh, the foreign minister to France, he would walk around in his coonskin <laughs> cap, playing up that role. Man, David, we uh, you know, you're talking about Hamilton, talking about Eisenhower writing speeches. We're we're yeah. in good company. Yeah, <laughs> I think speech writing one of the best jobs you can have in, in uh, government or in politics, especially if you're young, you know, you got a chance to learn, but they let you into meetings when you're 25, that if you were the economist, they wouldn't let you into your 45 or 50, you know, but I, I, that's when I first got my eyes open. I came to work for Nixon and they made me to the speech writing team and they assigned me to go to the cabinet meetings and take notes. And little did they understand this is one of the best places in the world to be. You're right here. You're all hearing these guys interchange it was you know you just grow up a lot absolutely i felt like i got a i've gotten a phd in leadership yeah just being able to be the person sitting in the back of the room yeah exactly not with the weight the stress of decisions on my shoulders i agree but being a fly on the wall yep absolutely i think every young person ought to work for some some towering figure you know somebody can be a role model but somebody just just in the way they act and make decisions and they think it's educating it educated me as a young person it's been awesome for me. A couple more questions because I'm trying sure. to be uh, cognizant of your time. One of the uh, things that's obviously come out in this interview is that you're very well read and you enjoy books. Do you have some books that you would recommend for leaders coming up, especially younger leaders? I do think that uh, some of the material that Warren Bennis, you know, he wrote a book called On Becoming a Leader. That is a classic in the field. And I think it's a, something I assign. Uh, on a regular basis. I'd like to think that the, and I hope that the book I'm just publishing will reach some young people. It's it's really aimed at people in their 20s and 30s um, a lot. And uh, I second that recommendation. It's a great, uh, great, yeah, great book. Thank you. There, there's this, this book by Larson. I think it's Eric Larson about London and during the war, something in the vial. The Splendid in the Vile. Splendid in the Vile. It's a, it's a really fast read. It's mostly about People at home, uh, Churchill in the midst of family, but also you know, how brave he was uh, and why people. And, and you remind you so much of Zelensky, you know, that put himself in harm's way, willing to take the hit, but that kept the morale up as opposed to these leaders who went and hit, hit under the rug or, you know, went into the countryside to escape it all. I think some of the writings of Bill George were fine. I'm a big believer in Arthur Schlesinger Jr. as an historian. He was easy to read, but he's got a He's got a chapter on, uh, or an essay on democracy and leadership, which I think is especially good. I, I try to get students to uh, to read that. There's a book on Churchill that's coming out that I want to read about the walk toward destiny, I think it's called, that I'm looking forward to. This will be aired, I think, before a new book comes out from Henry Kissinger on leadership. And it's going to be about leaders he has known over the years, reflections on Lee Kuan Yew and people like that. Wow, that's going to be a great book. Yeah, so I think that could be a very, very good book. It's scheduled for publication in early May. Okay, all right. So, David, before we wrap up here, is there you know any yeah. any final comments you have? Any any parting thoughts? 
Well, I, uh, yes, I, I have a, a, one big thought. Listen, uh, over the years, I, especially in the recent years, I've become a short-term pessimist, but a long-term, I remain a long-term optimist. You know, we've, we've been through a lot in the last few years. We've, we've had a lot of crises. We haven't handled them very well. There have been very few heroes who have emerged. But I can tell you, bubbling up, I think there's a whole, there are a couple of generations coming, younger generations, that I think can rescue the country. The millennials and the Gen Z, the Gen Zers, are not as uh, caught up in the polarization and the anger and the poison. They're not into all this fractured politics that we've had. And what they, they're anxious to do something new. And I think we need, it's time to pass the torch. It's time to tell us older guys and women, you know, I'm, I'm just turning 80, as I mentioned. There's a very important play, role we can play, mentoring people, helping people from the sidelines. We need a new generation coming on the field who bring new fresh vision and fresh energy and fresh idealism. They're not worn down by all these things. I think it would be a terrible mistake if we had in the presidential elections of 2024, you know, we had two 78-year-olds running against each other. You shouldn't become president when you're 80 years old. Uh, you know, you might speak well for a while, but you don't know what's going to happen to somebody in their 80s. And you you have flawed vision. And presidents become such such important players. They do call the shots about when you, you know, when you fire a nuclear weapon. You need people of real, you know, really on top of their game to make those kind of decisions. So I think two things. One is it's time to encourage the older generation to play a different role, leave the field. But it's also time for us to take seriously the preparation of new leaders. The military does it extremely well. I think the military is probably the best institution we have for, for creating, molding, shaping future leaders. We need to do that more in the other institutions that we have, some of the other universities. It's important that the people who graduate from our elite schools now share the patriotism that we've seen in the past, not sort of treat this as, oh, well, it's, you know, America, we're all racist, we're all this, we're all that. We're much better than we're being portrayed, and we're much stronger. And I think we have the resilience to rebound. We've done it before, but we have to be serious about it. Our democracy is in more peril today than any time we've seen in our lifetimes. And I think it, it's a responsibility of all of us. And, you know, thank you for your long service, 18 years plus. That's remarkable. It's a really good record. But to people like you, I think when you leave the service, I think you can do great things for the country because you're going to be in the prime of life. Yeah, well, uh, David, as a young person, next generation, you know, I want to say thank you for, you know, not just sitting on all those lessons that you've learned throughout your life. Well, thank you. But it's taking that, yeah, taking those and writing them down yeah. and sharing Hearts Touch with Fire with us. Okay. Thanks so much. We'll talk again, I hope. Oh, I hope so too. Thank you very much, David. Okay. Take care. Thank you again for listening to another episode of From the Green Notebook podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us five stars wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps us gain visibility and the opportunity to help more people on their leadership journey. Also, make sure you check out our website at www.fromthegreennotebook.com. There, you can listen to past episodes, read leadership articles written by military leaders from around the world. You can sign up for our monthly reading list email where you can learn about new books that are coming out. And our Sunday reflection email that comes out every Sunday morning is really short. It's a two-minute read but I guarantee you it's going to start your week off on the right foot. Finally, make sure you follow us on Twitter at FTGN Notebook 
And you can find us on Instagram and Facebook by searching for From the Green Notebook. Again, thank you so much for coming on this journey with us. I am humbled by the opportunity to learn these lessons alongside you. So please join us next week for another episode of From the Green Notebook, where we're going to help you lead with the best version of yourself. I came from the mud. There's